Imagine I ask you, choose 50 works from all of creation and clutch them to your breast. Everything else I will feed to my pretty flame. Anything you drop will also burn. Step with care over the charring bodies. Don't get blood on your sacred texts. For you, every text is sacred. You are alone, except for the mob. The mob is not people. The mob speaks as knells and rattles. This library is burning again. But worse things could happen. The library could be burning again. Your arms, your hands, they are so very small. The library is burning again, and this is the end of your world. Your death, a few scenes later, is so much easier to endure than this death. Apocalypse, from the Oxford English Dictionary. For those in the know, the OCD. <coughs> the Revelation, definition one, for Apocalypse with capital initials. Oh, is that better? Apocalypse. The revelation of the future granted to St. John in the Isle of Patmos. The book of the New Testament in which this is recorded. Two. By extension, any revelation or discourse. In the Christian church, the events described in the revelation of St. John, the second coming of Christ and the ultimate destruction of the world. More generally, a disaster resulting in drastic, irreversible damage to human society or the environment, especially on a global scale. A cataclysm also can weaken to the news. The last seconds of her life and afterward, there would only be the black night death, taking in terms of seconds and rhetoric, but it was also a great truth. The mad winds seemed bold enough to turn seconds into minutes and even hours, and if they felt like it, it would be not out of place to say days, but even so they would be seconds because anguish compresses time, whatever interval of time to painful dimensions of seconds. But the first thing anyone wants to ask you is what did it feel like? What was it like to die? The orange moon and the blue moon. There will be many things in the sky tonight and well into the day. Rain will flow backwards. It will drip into the sands. It will drain into the dark blue and the clouds. <coughs> I don't know what it feels like to actually die, but I know what happens when one nearly dies. Everything is so very fast and very slow. There's that blur of a Monet painting. The sky and the earth and the car are all just colors and dimmed. They spin in a way. Everything is still, but also in motion. Think of that final moment on the roller coaster when your car goes upside down. There's a suspension, a hesitation despite the speed. You know time passes, and you can see it pass. But you also know that your internal time has been shifted and is stuck in a single, lasting moment. This moment in which we are existing is forever. The worst to happen has already happened. Justine spends nearly all of her time in the bath. She takes 12 baths a day and they last many hours. When she is chastised for such waste, she takes to bathing in the lake. When she is not in the water, Justine sleeps. She doesn't eat or drink, but weeps meticulously. She studies the art of weeping. She washes her face so very often. She washes her face and washes her face she washes her face so often and washes her face. She washes her face so often and washes her face 
The worst to happen has already happened, so she washes her face in the lake. She washes her face and washes her face. Justine spends all her time in the bath. She takes 12 baths a day at least, and they last many hours. When she had just died for such waste, she takes to bathing in the lake where she washes her face. When she is not in water, she sleeps. She rarely speaks, even when spoken to. Only her sister speaks with her. Claire rubs Justine's shoulders and kisses her head. She calls her by her nicknames and reminds her of the games they had at children. Claire helps Justine to wash herself in the places <coughs> she's grown afraid to touch and brushes the mats out of her hair. Won't you come to dinner, darling? Brushing her bangs out of her sister's eyes. I've made meatloaf, your favorite. Claire helps to dress her and offers her so much love. You need love when the worst happens has already happened. Justine makes her way to dinner and leaning on her sister heavily. The sister's husband is cruel. He will be even in death, hogging all those pills to himself. When Justine sits at the table, she is nearly happy. Her nephew is young and only knows to show her affection in such a time. She smiles, but just slightly. The meatloaf is presented as a fine cuisine, the silver cover and all that. A generous slice is cut for Justine and placed on her plate. A fork is put into her hand. Her, folders, her fingers are folded kindly by her sister's fingers. You need love when the worst happens already happened. There's an expectation there. Let her be happy. The food and the love in it will bring her back from that other place. Justine brings a piece of the meatloaf to her lips and slowly chews. A few moments pass. Everyone watches inside and beyond the screen. And unexpectedly, Justine begins to sob, choking. It tastes like ashes. The worst to happen has already happened. The body of a 12-year-old girl dressed in cosmetics and a shirt with a sweeping neck. You can see that she has breasts and is grown, though she is short and frailly slender. The wave speaks to the other woman who is tall and has such long hair. Paradis smokes those long, thin cigarettes with the print of her colored lips. When no one was watching, no one could resist the anguish of desire. Would I wear that burning or the paper or that tar? The sound of the inhaling, the exhaling gray fumes and white background, dark clothing. The film has no color but the red, always red, the red of her lips, the red reminiscent of the little girl's coat and Schindler's list, a metaphor placed in the context of a thinner metaphor. There is no red. The monologue lasts five minutes, maybe more. The woman speaks through the history of her sex life, which is her life altogether of sex. The wave falls in love not with men, but in love with the act of making love and the power that it brings to her. She inhales deeply from her cigarette. Men are inescapable. The judge that arrests one lover becomes her next lover, lover after lover, finding their way to your bed. And that is the greatest of love of her life. We don't know how she ends up on the bridge, just that some man or another disappointed her. But anyway, she wants to be dead. The plan? To jump from the bridge into the mist. Supposedly a picturesque way to shuffle off this mortal coil. I've seen so many people jump into the San Francisco Bay, caught in those time-lapse photos. Gabor shows up in an old suit and tells her there are better more acceptable ways to get herself killed. He says he trolls the bridge at night for beautiful would-be jumpers, he says. But we wonder if he's there for the same reason as Adele. The wave is too beautiful to be sad, but he is far too sad to be beautiful.
When she does jump, we know she will not die. The worst to happen has already happened. <coughs> I watched the film again. Her lips are gray, not red. She doesn't smoke. She never smokes in the picture at all. Does anyone smoke in the film? They do. It's probably off screen. There's a lighter, but the cigarette is too damp. It's raining through the entire film. Even if there isn't smoking, the breathing in of smoke is what a secondary apocalypse brings to the mind. When you have had an apocalypse, you can smoke freely. Such freedom is the piece of a post-apocalyptic identity. There comes a time in his life when one must look up the plural of apocalypse. We want it to be dramatic. Apocalypsis, apocalyptis. But no, it's just an S and an E with no new pronunciation. Apocalypses. <coughs> the end of the world is an emotional time. There's the last man on the world happy to be alone, and I want the bookshelves to crush him. I want the birds to pick at his bones, but birds are left. When his glasses are destroyed and he weeps, I'm overjoyed. This is the true nature of apocalypse. If there is peace, if you walk toward the impending doom, it is simply the end of the world. You take your sister's hand to calm her, and you stare at your death, eyes full of ennui. For the weeping sister, there is apocalypse. For the calm one, it has already happened. It is only when his glasses break and the librarian cannot read for an eternity. It is only then, at that precise moment, in the pleasure we receive as viewers, that the apocalypse occurs. She holds the little girl so tightly, but the waters come, the fires come, the undead come, the nuclear apocalypse comes, the waters always come, just when we've classified them as landscape, as something inevitable something motionless. The problem with the objective apocalypse isn't the dying, it's the watching of others go. There will be one before you, that's the truth for all, but one. U.S. General Tommy Franks claimed in 2002, we don't do body counts. Apocalypse begets apocalypse. Newton's cradle ad infinitum. There is no decrescendo, no ritardando. The worst to happen has already happened. It's a foggy night and the fog is dark. It may even be marked by the pollution of the urban landscape below. The buildings are photographs or realistic paintings of the most detailed order. These buildings glow orange and yellow, matching the hues of the enormous moon of the upper left. A branch with the cherry blossoms sits just above the moon, a few petals blowing off romantically. The cityscape is broken by the shadow of a woman plummeting down from the tree, over the moon and toward the city. She has long black hair that dances, flutters in the breeze. She is not flailing, but looks almost asleep with her arms and legs stretched out. <coughs> we are told that if she wakes, the world will end. But the worst to happen has already happened. The worst to happen has already happened. Thank you.
In Haitian Creole, miel is both honey and bee. Last night, or two ago, or three, my father called in the middle of my study time. He asked me to hold on. He had a customer in his cab. He asked me to hold. I comforted him with my sincere willingness to hold. He hung up and called back. How was Haiti, I asked him. How was your time there? My father's laughter sounds shaky, but slips tidily across our line. Well, you know how these things are. Sweet, he tells me. Sweet, like it was miel. Sweet, like it was honey and bee. In Haitian Creole, miel is both honey and bee. So, I'd like to tell you this story about a goat herder. It's called Herding Bone. The breaking of bones sears through the night like the mighty teeth of scissors on linen. It sinks into the eardrums of villagers. It shakes their dreams, settling on their skins like salt on the sand of dunes. At the mouth of a lush green hill, with the set of housing, there's the house of a small goat herder. A goat herder with cheek stark as dunes. His great beard hangs from his dark chin like smoke rising from an upside-down chimney chute. There's not much this man can say that his beard hasn't said already. It stills answers from his lips. The gray beard announces, this man is stubborn, hungry, and old. At about sunset, as clouds convene, a vivid darkness settles on the town. There is faint but precise howling, whispers creeping from the grave, shadows lurking in the spaces between things. This is the time of day when everyone hurries home. This is the time of day when the goat herder heads out. I remember. When I was seven years old, my family and I moved to the U.S. because of political instability back home. At the first American school I went to, they did not know where to place me, so they gave me a test. Draw a kite, I was told. I drew a home. I was put back in an entire grade. In Haiti, the word kai means home, but in America, the word kite though it sounds familiar, can mean a blackbird even, but it cannot mean a home. How many were left? Egg white eyes stare from behind a netted door frame, a netted door frame to keep the company of mosquitoes out. I can't imagine, says the goat herder, 
His rough whisper swallows the quiet night. Mosquitoes buzz in and out of his ear. <coughs> well, imagine, for once, old man, imagine. I think maybe five, maybe more. The goat just wants to go home. A hand reaches to push a sloppy note outside the netted door. The money lands at the goat herder's feet, clinging to his muddy toes. The door slams shut. The goat herder bends to swallow the thin, feeble note, swallows it with a gnarled, grimy hand. He turns to face the walk home. Triggered by night phone. It's been three months in San Diego, and I'm losing my vocabulary, though not my memory. Memory is fragile, not forgiven. In one dream, I am holding a black man. He is my falsetto. I am his Rococo. In my mother's dream, I walk the streets of Port-au-Prince, naked, alone. My mother does not call often. When she does, she and I talk about not having called. Triggered by night phone. Most people think the nighttime is an area cleared for dreaming. A place for emptying colorful thoughts treasured deep in our chests all day. Night descends and out tumbles sunsets with blue skies booming underneath. But the gold herder is no dreamer. Dreaming is for fools, or worse, for the faint-hearted. The gold herder is born strong. He was born on one of the hottest days, right in the middle of a drought. In fact, his mother died just minutes after giving him birth. But that doesn't make the case. Fast forward 11 years, when a raging flood sweeps the gold herder's home away, his father encapsulated inside. As a young boy, the gold herder would search for his father, father's body for days. He would trek alone, eating his fingernails until he had none. And when he found his father's body, tangled in the broken grass of a cherimoya tree, he would separate his father from fruit, clear the ground of dark brown seeds, and dig a hole for his father to lie. This one story of the many untold should tell you why this goat herder is stubborn not to dream. It should make clear to you why he moved his house to a hill with a head full of clouds. Now, the moon is shining in full brilliance, casting a white glow on everything it sees. Tall coconut trees and stout green bushes shiver in the coldness of night. There is no romance in this moonlight, only severe whiteness, like pearls polished from the pit of the sea. The goat herder makes his way across a dirt road and through a thicket of bush and garbage. Treading lightly on the heads of mushrooms and dew-drinking weeds, he arrives to face the sea. With a shallow huff, the goat herder kicks the sliced head of a coconut shell. This entire day, he has been full of a sudden restlessness, an overwhelming angst, as if his soul no longer fits. He felt it had dwindled to live in the pit of his stomach, swirling in the mush of yams and onion eaten that day. Worries clinked inside his head like frantic dragonflies locked inside a jar. Everything felt cracked inside, splintered sadly, snapped in uneven halves. It was the end of a night's work, and he was on his way home after giving numbers to the man. Every last day of the week, he would tell the man how many bones had been unburied, broken, and shelled. Then the goat herder would take his spade and walk home. But tonight, the journey was dragging its feet. 
It felt twice as long pulling a wiry finger through the length of his white beard. It felt twice as long expiring a breath. As a goat herder shuffles home, the sea sighs, grazing his sheep with wet lips. He almost wishes the water would swallow him whole. He would be swept up suddenly into the arms of a beautiful mermaid. At the peak of dawn, he'd steal away from her. Stealthily, quietly, he'd leave his soul's rust at sea. The goat herder almost wishes, but he doesn't. The letter I received after winter explains that I have been suffering from writer's block, perhaps because I am separated from two places, Haiti and Miami. Most of the pieces I began this quarter remained unfinished, the letter explains. Pieces of her, while good, would have been better if extended. Pieces of her, while good, would have been better Pieces of her, while good, would have been better if extended. There are simple assumptions to make when things are missing. You assume they were taken. You think, maybe they left. You wonder if they were ever really there. Two nights ago, these questions warred inside an inquiring bald head. The goat herder stood in the stomach of the empty grave, floored. The hole he dug beneath a tombstone inscribed Bernard Sinclair revealed a rectangular wooden casket the size of a small boy. But the only figure inside the casket was a gaping hole, eaten by the passage of time. There was no corpse, no bones to speak of. Salt from the sweat of his bald head stung the goat herder's eyes. He wondered, is that how it feels to cry? Mister, what is it to you? The words came from a distance so faint the goat herder questioned if his own words had reached him. But he looked up and a weedy shadow stared back down. The shadow's face was bone thin without the comfort of flesh. Mister, I said, what is it to you? Why are you digging this grave? The goat herder searched the dark face deeply. His mind drew a blank. The voice carried the raspiness of a maturing boy. And what's it to you? The goat herder asked. What hold have you got on these bones? Electric white eyes grew round in the shadowy face. There was a pause. Then the dark figure extended a spare hand. I'll help you up, sir. The goat herder hesitated. It was not out of fear. That would be unusual. No, he experienced suspicion. No one traversed the Sinclair graveyard. Not since the verdict. No one wandered this graveyard alone. What are you doing here? The goat herder persisted, once pulled out of the hole he dug himself into. I'm looking for something. The answer was pinched from lips dry as twigs. The stranger carried a slight frame draped in a soiled shirt of royal blue. His large forehead prefaced two black bushy eyebrows stacked precariously above his eyes. Though the boy stood a couple inches taller than the goat herder, his gangly figure portrayed the breadth of his age. Well, that's not an answer to the right question I'm asking. What are you doing in this haunted place? My business has nothing to do with you, sir, and everything to do with the grave you're robbing. The goat herder's wiry finger tangled in his white beard. Then what does that grave mean to you? Well, since you're asking, the boy of royal blue walked around the goat herder to stare into the freshly dug grave. This grave is proof. It's solid proof. I may possibly be alive. 
I knew. I was bound. I stopped. I therefore moved on. I entered. I understood. I was. I had known. I deemed it, I suppose. I was. Sometimes I took a little. I suddenly remembered. I went and stood. I hoped. I could not hope. I apologize. I think. I still. I did not grasp. I stayed where I was. I am. I could therefore puzzle. I had to. I was in, I think. I was in. I could. I felt. I would have. Never escaped. I remember. So I just wanted to thank everyone who is here with me right now, and that includes the people that just read, and all of you, and it also includes people that aren't here, that are here, but aren't here. Um, so I wanted to share with you the first page of my thesis, which is a dedication page to one of my first mentors. Um, and. She, one of the last gifts that she gave me before she passed away in 2010 was her letter of recommendation for me to get into this program. So I also realized while putting my thesis together that the thesis didn't really, the, the thesis didn't matter so much as the people that made the thesis with me. So that includes my students, my professors, my comrades, my family. Um, and I kind of broke this into a couple parts, and this first part has to do with, uh, I've been reading and writing about water for a little while, which seems to be a theme in our videos tonight. And so the images that you see are images that I took from mainstream news sources uh, that I started gathering over the past year, and then the videos are videos that I've taken over time. It's been history before history. When different people know the same body of water by varying names, how do we? First, I give the voice a body by saying I, then dig into my matrilineal side. Bent, overturned earth, how wind carries dust, strands pulled from headscarf, rippling skirts, all of the fabric is cotton or burlap. How far back do we have to stand to see the <coughs> old? The way to deal is to sideswipe it, 
without ever mentioning rhymes with swallow toss. A poem becomes a building, a neighborhood, an entire city. Call the Carpathians a spine. Mention a river only by saying that it was. Mention a river by saying that there were once fish, now there are none. The museums, pamphlets, libraries say about the places of your origins. If my mother was raped before we met, I will not be told of it. If my father sought the services of sex workers in Vietnam, well. The unguided sewer, what we freeway over, sights of looping, memory is trained. Someone else's muscle drove those rail spikes in. A deeper document we inherit. List. Things this poem could be about. One. Color. The water in the pit is ox blood red at the surface from iron and manganese. Deeper down, the water is a lime green from heavy copper compounds. Two. Butte, Montana. Mining city the richest hill on earth. Three, a drop in copper prices. The company shut the pit down in 1982, removed pumps that had kept it dry. 2.6 million gallons of water have flowed into the pit every day since. Four, scale. The pit is a mile long, half a mile wide, 1,780 feet deep. Corporate consolidation. Anaconda Copper Mining Company, bought by Arco in 1977, which is now part of BP. Six, 342 snow geese. In 1995, a flock landed on the poisonous lake, and every one of them died. Seven, perspective. Arco blamed the death of the geese on a grain fungus, but the theory was widely ridiculed. Eight, thanatology. The acidic water had eaten away the epithelium that lines the esophagus and then attacked the bird's internal organs. Nine, a pontoon boat in an observation shack. Overlooking the pit since 1998, shotgun blasts, predator calls, and loud electronic sounds scare birds away from the lake. The system has been relatively effective. Rain sounds on neighbors' speckled gray roof. There are some places where women walk an hour or two to fill five-gallon jerry cans with clean water. There are some places positioned between home and clean water that qualify as hostile territory. There are some hostile territories that qualify a woman's body as fair game with or without the weight of water drawing out the muscles in her forearm. November 13, 2007, Atlanta, Georgia. Two and a half years into the drought on the Capitol steps, Governor Sonny Perdue melds church and state as he prays for rain. We have come together here for simply one reason, and one reason only, to very reverently and respectfully pray up a storm. A gospel choir rises and what a mighty God we serve, ministers, Politicians, worshipers, clasp hands, bow heads. It's time to appeal to him who can and will make a difference. Oh, Father, we acknowledge our wastefulness. We acknowledge that we haven't done the things we need to do. Father, forgive us and lead us to honor you as you honor us with the showers of blessing. What came before? 2007, summer. Lake Sydney Lanier drops 15 feet. Boats stranded on gravel edges. Newspapers across the nation present front page photos of Lanier's high, dry docks. The term virtually rainless is used. April, 
Georgia placed on the statewide three-day-per-week watering limit may. Atlanta allows watering on weekends only. August, temperatures reach 104 degrees Fahrenheit. September, all outdoor watering in the northern half of Georgia is banned for the first time in history. October, Lake Lanier, less than three months returning empty. November, Governor Purdue declares a state of emergency for the northern third of Georgia. We do believe in miracles. We believe that you are the miracle creator, the creator that established the water and the land and the air, and even us, God, we need you. We need rain. What followed, 2009, September 15th, 0.04 inches of rain. Due to a collision with a high pressure system over the east coast, a low pressure system pauses as it crosses Georgia. September 16th, 0.53 inches of rain. September 17th, 0.27 inches of rain. September 18th, 0.53 inches of rain. September 19th, 0.02 inches of rain. September 20th, 3.77 inches of rain. Creeks creep over their banks. Half a hundred homes flood. Water-weighted trees tip to the ground. Power goes down across the Atlanta metropolitan area. Red Cross begins evacuations. September 21st, 0.87 inches of rain. September 22nd, 1.8 inches of rain. Sweetwater Creek flowing at 28,000 cubic feet per second, 13 feet above flood stage. Chattahoochee River rises to heights not seen since 1919. September 23rd, rains ease, clouds dissipate, revealing 11 dead, 16,000 homeless, 17 bridges across Georgia closed, stretches of the interstate down, untreated sewage released into residential neighborhoods. Governor Purdue declares a state of emergency. Great God, this is your land. We till it for you. We are entrepreneurs for you. Epilogue. The United States Geolo Geological Survey published a report one month after the disaster, stating the chances of a flood of this magnitude hitting this region is one in 10,000. Dear beloveds, I'm scared about the story of water. Still brain wrapping around the fact that some people, some companies own and sell this element. Packs of plastic bottles stacked 12 high in flatbeds. Same bottles that can be found floating in a patch of trash four times the size of Texas in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. An island so big it took a yacht or a week to sail through it before he hit open ocean again. Bottles that will eventually break down to little bits for fish to feed on, but that will never disappear. I'm scared that one of the chapters of this water story tells us that our bodies are about 70% water, same as the Earth's surface. Numbers so similar that when the oil leak on the Gulf could not be stopped, I could feel the slick in my stomach, in between my muscle and bone, a sheen on the skin, and the cells of all of us that we did not know how to wipe away. Headed north on the 205, then east on the 14, towards clear, cold Washougal River, we discover four out of our five fathers are Vietnam vets. One worked construction, erecting barracks, rebuilding bombed-out villages, Photos of black-haired kids eating white rice from wide bowls. A metal film canister filled with Vietnamese coins. A story of how the sun burned his body so bad he blistered. And a story of a river bridge for hot weather diving. The surprise of a body floating by. I have asked Vietnamese or American, but I have never asked clothes or flesh 
face down or up. I have never asked who was there to collect ID tapes, fingerprints, teeth. So that concludes the water portion. Um, and then the next section is a, Okay, so there's a series that I composed called uh, Gertrude Stein did this to me, and she really, she really did. This is all her fault. Um, and it's these poems without a single word in them. And ideally, you would just look at them, and I wouldn't be saying anything, but I'm doing a little bit of layering here. So I'm also going to read you these poet texts that I composed on my phone, um, playing around with predictive um, and I've sort of been having an ongoing battle about uh, sort of pitting um, conceptual, experimental work against lyric narrative work and sort of thinking that lyric narrative work is the work that's accessible to all people and that conceptual experimental is not. I know that's not true. Um, and one of the people that changed that a little for me is a uh, fellow poet, Marco Antonio Huerta, who lives in Yudal, Victoria, in Tamaulipas, Mexico. And um, we were talking about this whole thing. He was saying, um, we can't write these poems about birds, about the sky, and flowers anymore, not when our people are killing each other, not when our country is at war. So I thought that was as good as an argument So I'm just going to let you kind of soak it in for a little bit, and then I'll read the poem. Let me drown deep for a summer split. Tie the root beer under your tongue. Believe that night forever in your razor-wired fingers. Lock me down when undercutting is it. Exhausted and horizontal, you'll be without. If this starvation sharpens your heart compass, allow me to end this oil spill. Don't come down from the dance floor fire. I think I can bind you, breathing in, summer stones smooth, the treehouse, the skin, undone by skyscrape, over other under, stillness waiting in miniature. I sense everything else clean and language. You wanted to see you. God is a talk magical, making diction when you'll be dreaming a while the most interesting thing. Forget grappling and talk fuel glossary. Wait untoward if life forgets which global, global navy rends entrance. Keen turns and underrooms she untames royalty within. <coughs> Economic downturn, the dance move, undo. Trouble works in this body, your house. Straddling early, this modernism needs some serious ass tonight. <laughs> Understudy of love. We slow dance this machine into arm ache and atrophy while threading streams of fever and fuck. Use this quarter inch of life force under a whole thank you sky. Make for yesterday's safe word, caution taped to the wind. Consider the sun still, first forest, family detox, listerine this hot kiss, find sign of before war times. Um, and then, oh, one note. The, in the water videos, the one that really didn't have water in it, that was all that sand with people driving around with ATVs, that was the Platte River in Nebraska without the river in it. Um, so I passed around these note cards that say Dear Beloveds on them. And uh, this past summer, I went on a, a tour in a, zine, a mobile zine library. And we hosted show and tells um, in California, Washington, Minnesota, 
Nebraska, uh, Iowa, Missouri, and at every stop I collected these, these note cards from willing participants. And so I asked them to write a word or a phrase or a sentence or a miniature poem um, to the entire world, to all humans in the world. So I invite you to do the same with the note cards that you have, and I just wanted to share with you a few of those. Dear beloveds, don't go away, or at least too far. Dear beloveds, I am relatively certain about nothing, and I'm okay with that. Dear beloveds, I adore you and want to know your story. In a world of so much hyperstimulation and quickness, I want to encounter you in a place of exchange. Dear beloveds, take your goddamn time. Dear beloveds, I hear you. You overwhelm me with your grandness. Dear beloveds, we have names for less than 10% of life on the planet. I was told this by a most reputable source yesterday. I question my ability to recall anything with dependability. However, I am relatively certain that this is true. Dear beloveds, it's murder and hell deep in your bones. Dear beloveds, be rad to one another. Dear beloveds, I want to know how many of you are as scared as I am. Dear beloveds, we smear together, all together, all separate. All I want is to keep smearing with you, with everything, until the great eternal smudge is too beautiful to look away from. And there's a web page where all the entire collection exists, and so if you are willing, if you write out to Dear Beloved, you hand it back to me, your card will end up on the web page. So if you just look for um, Dear Beloved's project at WordPress, you will find it. Thank you for being with me. talking to experience 
is is to fill holes in my memory. You're next, right? Yeah, you are. Uh, I, the images, I mean, I'm a collector, so I think an under the surface thing form, but I, I select from the collection after the things are written, just to give you something to look at. <laughs> so my visual pieces were independent of the text that I read. So I guess because it's coming from one body, one person, they're deeply connected. Um, and I was able to make that connection afterwards, just thinking about my reading. So because in the blog I will tag things, um, I, I was noticing that water was coming up a lot because of the process of tagging. Um, I was noticing this working that work in. Um, so I think that's how I realized that it was already coming up in the work that I was doing. I am also Scorpio, which is a water sign. Um, But I think the larger thing is the, the work that I'm doing feels like it's always wanting to reach out to everyone, mm -hmm. which is a lot of people. <laughs> um, but the magic thing about water is that we're all made of it. Mm -hmm. No matter where we live, we all drink it. Mm -hmm. We all, if we can, get into it. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the interest for me. And ideally, if I could, I would travel everywhere and ask people to talk to me about water. So I don't know what it's becoming yet, but it is becoming. Thank you. 